The New Testament readings from Matthew chapter 10, 16 to 42. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. But I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Rather, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It's, it's good to be with you this morning. And if this is the first time you're here uh, at One Inch and Hope, we're, we're glad and grateful that you're here with us. And uh, we do hope that we can get a chance to connect with you before you take off this morning. And today we're, we're continuing through our series in the Gospel of, of Matthew. And last week we looked at the first half of Jesus' charge to his disciples as he sends them out to proclaim his message. And, and this week we're looking at the second half of that charge, and this is something that we do well to attend to as those who Christ sends out in his name. And in light of that charge, let us come before God in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for this message, the message of the gospel that we are tasked and privileged to bring to the world. And I pray, Father, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions for this passage, Lord, and that you would work them into 
all of our hearts, all of our heads, and all of our hands as we seek to live out your word in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here we have a passage about persecution. And perhaps our first response is actually to see it as a rather bleak depiction of life. Perhaps we read this and think that Christ is giving us a pretty dim picture of the human situation. Perhaps we think that Christ is telling us not to care for or to love anything but God himself. Perhaps we think that Jesus is calling us to simply let go of any and all attachments that we might have in this world to become someone who cares little or nothing for their own physical life or their family or their friendships or the joys that vocation and career or, or even nature can provide. Perhaps as we read, we get the sense of an inhuman humanity. But here we have to be clear on what persecution is. And I think we can best understand persecution like this. Persecution is the forced renouncing of a lesser good for the sake of the greatest good. Persecution is a forced renouncing of a lesser good for the sake of the greatest good. In persecution, we are forced to give up something that is truly good, something that we rightly love. And we do so for the case of something greater, something we should love more still. The philosopher Charles Taylor is is helpful here. He explains that the Christian doctrine of, of renunciation, it actually supposes that the things being renounced are good things, that they are goods. To renounce a good is to suppose that the thing being renounced is a good, and this is what makes it a sacrifice. If it wasn't something good, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. But it's also to recognize that it's not your greatest good. To renounce a good, you recognize that it is something that you rightly love, but that you must love something else even more. And the greatest good, of course, is God himself. If the things that we renounced were not good, then this would undo the whole logic of renunciation and sacrifice. Because renunciation does not dismiss or reject the goodness of creation in the world. It approves and affirms it. However, renunciation does assume that some goods are better than others. And for the Christian, the one good that must never be renounced is God himself. And we all know this dynamic in regular life. We renounce the good of dessert for the greater good of physical health. We renounce the good of an extra hour of work for the good, the greater good, of family and friendship. We renounce the good of an extra half hour of sleep for the greater good of reading scripture and praying. And here, Christ calls us to be willing to renounce all lesser goods, if need be, for the greatest good of God. But note that this persecution is a forced renunciation. It's not a renunciation that the Christian wishes. 
The Christian never wishes to die to give up their life. The Christian never wishes to bring dissension among family and friends to give up those close relational bonds. The Christian never wishes to compromise their career to give up the work that God has given us to do. The Christian is called to love their life and their neighbor and their vocation that God has called them to. These are all good things, gifts from God that we should love. But we are called to love God still more. We are to mourn when lesser goods are taken away. While we all have much to learn from Teresa of Avila, we should not follow her exhortation to be so conformed to the will of God that if my father or brother dies, I don't feel it. This is not God's will for the human because it is quite simply in human. A loving father and a loving brother are good gifts from God. They may, in a fallen world, be taken away in various ways, but precisely because they are good, they should never be taken from us without deep grief and mourning. However, the Christian disciple, Christ tells us, must be ready, if need be, to give up all of the very good goods in this world for the greatest good of all. If every other good in this world is forced out of our hands, we are nonetheless called to cling to that good that can never be pried away by the forced renunciation of persecution. That's God. That's only God. Again, persecution is the forced renouncing of a lesser good for the sake of the greatest good. However, we must note that while renunciation is a forced act in response to persecution, persecution is also a reaction to another act. Look at how Jesus begins this passage. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What is it that brings about the act of persecution? Well, it's Christ sending out his disciples, Christ sending them off to proclaim his message to the world. And what this means is that the disciples are proclaiming a message that, in some way, shape, or form, others would rather not hear. But they do it, as we will see, because they love that good that is their neighbor, more than any good that their neighbor can give or take away. If we love our goods, the goods that our neighbor can give and take from us, more than the greater good of our neighbor, then we will never be able to endure persecution. And this dynamic is captured in the three animals that Christ here calls us to be like. We're called to be as serpents, as sheep, as doves. And as we will see, each of these animals has much to teach us about our going out, our being sent, and also our persecution, our forced renunciation. And so I want to look at this passage under three headings. Wise as serpents, pure as doves, shepherded as sheep. Let's look first at wise as serpents. Christ tells us to be wise as serpents, and this charge might surprise us. Because when we think of a serpent in the Bible, we think of Genesis 3. We think about the temptation of Adam and Eve. And actually, this is precisely where our minds should go. 
The Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, it uses the same term here that is used by Jesus that's, that's translated as wise, but it does so in the superlative, in the most emphatic form. The Septuagint tells us in Genesis 3, Behold, the serpent was the wisest of all of the beasts upon the earth. And if you check your ESV translation of this verse in Genesis 3, it'll tell you that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And the Hebrew word translated as, as crafty, arum, is not necessarily seen as a bad or negative thing. And in fact, we find this same word in Proverbs 12, something the, 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 the ESV translates as prudent. We find the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaim folly. In the Bible, wisdom is a matter of living rightly in the order that God created. It's living rightly before God, with neighbor, in the natural world. Wisdom is a lived knowledge. It's understanding the way that things work. But biblical wisdom goes even further. We're told many times in Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of of the Lord. And as, as commentators note, this, this notion fear is probably best translated or thought of as a loving reverence, a loving reverence. And this loving reverence is not just the beginning of wisdom, but also its end. As Ecclesiastes tells us, another book of wisdom literature in the Bible, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And so biblical wisdom is not just advice for getting around in the created order. It's a recognition that everything must begin and end with a loving, loving reverence for God. It's a recognition that God alone is our very greatest good. And if we do not rightly love and revere him, then we cannot be rightly related to reality. We cannot be properly human because as Ecclesiastes tells us, Without this loving reverence, we cannot do the whole duty of humanity. And the serpent knows this. The serpent knows that there is an order to creation. The serpent knows that to live rightly in this order, we must be rightly related to other goods. Loving lesser goods less, loving greater goods more, and loving the greatest good, God himself most of all. The serpent knows that wisdom that living rightly in the world must begin and end with a loving reverence for the Lord. The wise serpent knows this, and we too are called to know this. We too are called to be as wise as serpents. But this raises a question. If we are to know this, and if this is meant to be part of the message that we proclaim, why does this bring anger, even persecution? Well, we all pursue some good, most of all, more than any other good. Uh, writer and professor Zena Hitz, she catalogs a number of, of things that humans have put forward in our society as their greatest good. She lists wealth, status, family life, serving our community, the enjoyment of the natural world, pleasure, writing novels, the pursuit of mathematical truth. And all of these things are good things. God made the world and everything in it and all of it is good.
But again, what is our greatest good? And this is really another way to ask, what are you willing to hold on to at all costs? What would you never renounce, even if you were forced for force to renounce everything else? Hitz mentions family life as one possibility. And Jesus actually mentions this too in our passage. Or at least Jesus mentions this as a good that we might lose. In this passage, Jesus warns his disciples that being his disciples may very well set their family members against them. It may be well that, or sorry, it very well may be that, as Jesus says, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And these are surprising words. Is Jesus telling us that family is not a good? Is Jesus telling us that it's something that we should simply toss away? No. Jesus is assuming that we care for our family, that family life is a good that we should love. All good things in creation, including family life, should be loved. But again, not everything should be loved equally. A harmonious family life is a great, great gift. But Jesus tells us it's not the greatest gift. Jesus tells us in quite striking terms, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Love your family, yes. But Jesus, in surprising words, calls us to love him more. Jesus is God, and so he is our greatest good. But why would this set people at odds against each other? Well, to say that there is a greatest good is to say that there is only one greatest good. This is to say that any other thing we might pursue as our greatest good is wrong. In a sense, it's to tell people that their whole life is aiming at the wrong thing, even if that thing is a very, very good thing. And this is a message that makes people angry. Pastor Tim Keller is, is helpful here. He makes the point that if Christians are always making people angry, well, that person is probably being a jerk about their faith. But he also says if the Christian is never making people angry, well, that person is probably being fearful about their faith. And my guess is that most of the people in this room fall into the second error. I can relate. And so let's keep that in mind as we go forward and look at how Jesus confronts his culture and ours. One reason that Jesus mentions family is because in that culture, society placed a huge emphasis upon family. Your primary obligation was to your family. Your primary support structure was your family. The primary way that you were known to other people was through your family. The primary role that you took on was a function of your family. And again, family is a great, great good, but it's not our greatest good. Even this, Jesus tells us, we must be ready to renounce for God if forced. And the fact that Jesus mentions this, mentions family, it's important because in that culture, Family was the main competitor for our greatest love, the main competitor with God. And so we have to ask, what might Jesus mention in our culture? 
Would he say, I have come to put manager against worker? Would he warn us that Christian convictions could compromise the good gift of our vocation, our career, as we take stands that are unpopular in the culture? Are we, really, are we willing to renounce the lesser good of professional success for the greater good of God? Would he say, I have come to set professors against students? Would he warn us that Christian convictions could compromise our success at the university? Are we willing to renounce the lesser good of academic success for the greater good of God? Would he say, I have come to set financial planner against client? Would he warn us that Christian convictions will make us use our money more generously than prevailing financial opinion would suggest? Are we willing to renounce the lesser good of wealth for the greater good of God? Would he say, I have come to set desire against desire? Would he warn us that Christian commitments about sexuality would put you out of step with our pornographic and exploitative culture that treats it as a mere appetite and the body of another person as a mere tool for our pleasure? Are we willing to renounce the lesser good of social affirmation for the greater good of God? Jesus is asking us, what do you fear most being taken away from you? And I imagine all of us would give different answers to that question, but all of us have an answer. Would you be willing to renounce even that for me? Jesus asks. Again, the serpent, he knows all of these things. But his wisdom is a counterfeit wisdom because he does not direct it to the love of God. However, this is the love that Christ calls us to. And so we are not only called to be wise as serpents. This brings us to our second point, pure as doves. The serpent knows the truth, but the dove loves the truth. And this is why Jesus calls us to be, the Greek word here is akeraios, as doves. And the ESV here translates it as innocent, but a more literal translation would be unmixed, unmixed. It's a, it's a negative term. It describes something not mixed or diluted or corrupted with some other thing. And if we made it into a positive term, we might think of, of pure. We might think of purer, unmixed gold, gold that's free of any dross. And remember that in the Beatitudes we, we looked at over the summer, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the Greek word here is a positive term meaning pure, but it works with unmixed. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, and they both have to do with the heart, the way that we love. Pure gold is unmixed gold without any dross. Pure love is unmixed love without any dross. This is how we are meant to be like a dove. And the Bible actually gives us a bit of dramatic irony to show us exactly what this is not. Because there's actually a prophet whose Hebrew name means dove. And this is the prophet Jonah. And he is no dove. He, like the serpent, knows who God is. He, like the serpent, knows that God is our greatest good, but he does not love God. After the miraculous repentance of Nineveh and, and God's relenting of destruction, Jonah angrily responds. He says this, 
O Lord, was this not my word when I was still in my country? Thus I fled in haste to Tarshish because I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and relenting from destruction. Jonah here quotes one of God's preeminent acts of self-disclosure, of, of revelation. This is Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God proclaims his character to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jonah, like the serpent, knows all of this about God. And Jonah, like the serpent, does not love God. Who God is, his gracious and compassionate and loving character, makes Jonah angry. So yes, we like the serpent must know God, but we like the dove must also love God. And so we find a bitter irony here because the prophet named dove is anything but. Jonah does not only lo not love God, he also does not love his neighbor. He's angry that the Ninevites have been spared from the divine judgment of death, and he's angry for God, sorry, he's angry at God for not killing them. But Christ calls us, unlike the prophet named Dove, to truly love God and neighbor as doves. Disciples are to love the people that they minister to. And so what then does it mean to have a pure heart? Does it mean to, to only love God and nothing else? Well, no, again, this would undercut the whole logic of renunciation. This would deny the goodness of the world that renunciation and sacrifices Suppose, a pure heart is not a heart that loves God only. A pure heart is a heart that loves God fully. Recall the two great commandments that God gives to humanity, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and neighbor rightly are never in competition, and in fact, the more we love God, the more we will love our neighbor. And if we don't love our neighbor, we will not endure persecution. We will not endure the forced renunciation of lesser goods. If we don't love our neighbor more than the goods that our neighbor can take away from us, they could be friendship, romance, career, resources, status, even our physical life. If we don't love our neighbor more, then we will never endure our neighbor taking these things away from us in persecution. Remember, the Beatitude tells us, blessed in the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as those who seek to love the truth like a dove, we will see God's hands in all things. We will see God working even in the darkest moments. In each moment of persecution, we will see God working to refine our hearts, working like a furnace to make our love like pure gold, free from diluting and corrupting dross. And I say this with, with trepidation because this is a very difficult truth. But in each persecution, in each forced renunciation of lesser goods, we have to hear Christ asking us the same question he asked three times to Peter. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? But there's more. It's not just that the pure in heart shall see God 
they shall also make God seen. And enduring persecution, we love our neighbor by demonstrating to them that God is so good, so great, so gracious, that even if you take everything from me, I still have more than I could ever imagine. I have God himself. And nothing makes people consider a claim more seriously than to see a person hold on to it so dearly when all conventional wisdom says to let it go. And Christ tells us, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father in heaven. So ask yourself, have you ever affirmed Christ at personal or professional or social cost? If not, perhaps you have not really come to him. And if you deny Christ, you not only deny your love for him, you also deny your love for your neighbor. When you deny Christ, you love what your neighbor can take away from you more than you love your neighbor. You love your job, your status, your success more than you long for your neighbor to see the truth of God's goodness and graciousness and love. And while many Christians around the world do face death on account of their faith, most of our experiences in this room are probably much more like the audience to the letter of the Hebrews who have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But even still, this is a hard and difficult truth. But properly speaking, it is not us who clings to God, but God who clings to us. And that brings us to our third and final point, shepherded as sheep. Christ calls us to be like serpents, to know the truth, Christ calls us to be like doves, to love the truth. But Christ also calls us to be like sheep, to trust the truth. Again, Christ tells us, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Christ sends us as sheep. But there's a deep, deep irony here. You can't send out sheep. They wander. They get lost. They always lose their way. To be sent out as a sheep is to be sent out as one who never goes anywhere without their shepherd. To be sent out as a sheep is to be sent out as one who is shepherded at each step along the way. And this directs us to an important truth. Think of those other goods that we are tempted to give ourselves to, to love most of all. We give ourselves to our work, and one day we will retire and be forgotten. We give ourselves to our physical health and appearance, and each day we succumb more and more to the wear and decay of time. We give ourselves to our finances, but each new market plunge or round of inflation reminds us just how precarious, just how fragile these resources actually are. And this is perhaps the hardest of all. We give ourselves to our family. But one day, each of these people will be taken away from us, or we from them. Each of these goods in this fallen world will pass through our fingers. We cannot hold on to them. We will try, but they will disappear in our hands. But God truly is 
the greatest good. And he would not be the greatest good if he had anything less than the greatest love for us. We cannot cling to all of these other goods that we turn to. But God, that good that we have turned away from, he clings to us. If God is the greatest good, then he must not ultimately be a good that we seek out and try to hold on to. He must not be a good that we must maintain and keep up and refine and preserve and work to make better, like the goods of career or health or appearance. If that were the case, then we would be a greater good than God. If that were the case, then our love would be stronger than God's love. But no, God is the greatest good, and he has demonstrated this because he has gone out to us in his perfect goodness and love. He's come out to seek us and to save us and to bring us back to himself. Strictly speaking, we do not find God. God finds us. He is our shepherd. We are the lost sheep. But if God is the greatest good, this also means something else. God is not only wholly loving, but he is also wholly just. God can't simply excuse or ignore all the ways that we've instrumentalized God and neighbor to get what we want. Because the opposite of persecution is instrumentalizing. It loves what your neighbor can give and take away more than it loves your neighbor themselves. We've loved our career more than our neighbor, and so we see our neighbor only as a professional connection to get ahead. We have loved our pleasure more than our neighbor, and so we treat our neighbor as a kind of meal to satisfy our erotic appetite. We've loved social acceptance more than our neighbor, and so we have misrepresented the words of our neighbor to scapegoat them and to gain public favor. God is wholly good, and so he is wholly just, and so he cannot ignore this. If God could, then God would not be the greatest good. So then, we have the great and good shepherd who in love longs to be with his sheep, but who in justice cannot excuse all the ways that we, that his sheep, have instrumentalized the other, that we've turned to persecution on its head. And so, what is the greatest good to do? Well, God the Son became human in Jesus Christ, and this is who our shepherd is, the God-man. And he, in his humanity, identifies wholly with his sheep. He tells them, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. If anyone receives you warmly as you point them to God, Christ says it's as if they have received me. But Christ goes further. He tells his sheep, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. However, before the disciples will pick up their cross for Christ, Christ will pick up his cross for them. Christ is telling us if we lose our life for Christ's sake, we will find it precisely because Christ lost his life for our sake. Christ himself faced a decision of renunciation. We are his neighbors, his brothers and sisters. 
But the only way that Christ could be with us, his sheep that he so dearly loves, was to suffer the perfect justice that it demands. What perfect justice demands for all the ways that we have been wolves. And so Christ on the cross suffers the punishment of justice that God's great goodness demands so that he can fulfill the longing of love that God's great goodness desires. Christ suffered what his sheep deserved so that he could be with his sheep. And so Christ shows himself as the greatest good, both holy, loving, and holy, just. Do you long for perfect love? Look to Christ. Do you long for perfect justice? Look to Christ. Do you long for the deepest desires of your heart to be fulfilled? Look to Christ, your greatest good, and put your faith in him. Meditate upon the cross and let it fill you with love for God. Think about all that God has done for you to reconcile you to himself. Let it grow your love for God. Because without love for God, we will never rightly love our neighbor. And without love for our neighbor, we will never love our neighbor more than the things our neighbor can take away. And we will never endure persecution. So ask yourself, what is it that competes with my love for God? You are human, which means that you are a creature who loves. The problem is not that you love too much. The problem is that you do not love rightly. Do you struggle with lust? If so, when you find yourself overcome with this desire, ask that God would make you desire Him with that same intensity. Do you struggle with desiring professional success above all else? Do you struggle with desiring social approval above all else? Do you struggle with desiring physical health and beauty above all else? Do you struggle with desiring romance above all else? Do not love and desire with less intensity. That would be an inhuman answer. But learn to direct this intensity to its proper object. Ask God for this. Please, God, redirect this desire that is burning up my bones. Please direct it to you. And there's another dove that we need to mention. In Christ's baptism, the Holy Spirit is represented as a dove as we see him coming down upon Christ. And this is fitting. As the ancient African Bishop Augustine tells us, the Holy Spirit is the very love of God. He's the love that binds together Father and Son. And so God sends the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his sheep, and this dove perches there. And when he perches, he fills us with the very love of God. And this dove sings when our hearts cannot when we cannot sing songs of love to God and neighbor. This dove loves with us and for us. And so we pray, God, teach my heart to sing by following the song of this dove, stubborn sheep though we are. And one day our shepherd will come again, and on that day we will love him with a holy, pure, and unmixed love. And not only will we love all other things rightly, but all things, all the good gifts of creation, every lesser good that we have renounced, will be given back to us in a holy, restored, 
creation. As C.S. Lewis tells us, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are so great, that you love us more deeply than we could ever imagine. That in order to satisfy your good and perfect justice, you identified fully with your sheep in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help our hearts to rest and rejoice and glorify you in that truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.